Hi, everybody, and welcome to a bonus episode of Warm Regards. I'm producer Stephen Lacey in Boston. Every once in a while, we're going to give you some extra stories and interviews alongside the in-depth conversations between Eric, Jacqueline, and Andy. Let's call these occasional extras interstitials. This week, we present a story about the global cooling myth that has persisted since the 1970s. Why is it that politicians and climate skeptics keep falsely claiming that scientists whipped us into a frenzy about global cooling before talking about warming? I dug in to find out. This story was actually produced last year, so you'll notice the political references are a bit dated, but it is still just as relevant. After you're done listening, make sure to pass word of this show on to your friends, your colleagues, and anyone who may be interested in the complex picture that is climate change. Coming up over the next few weeks, we'll have conversations on how to understand the past, present, and future of climate change, further framing this series. For now, enjoy the bonus show. Forty years ago, on April 28, 1975, Newsweek magazine published an article that created one of the most pervasive scientific myths today. It was a one-page story buried in the middle of the magazine, but it became the most widely cited article in Newsweek's history. It wasn't a big deal story. Uh, here is what a, um, a group of scientists who specialize in climate studies are thinking at the moment. Peter Gwynn authored the piece. He was Newsweek's science editor at the time. The article started this way. There are ominous signs that the Earth's weather patterns have begun to change dramatically and that these changes may portend a drastic decline in food production, with serious political implications for just about every nation on Earth. The concern, wrote Gwynne, was climate change. But warming wasn't the culprit. It was global cooling. Now, in retrospect, those implications were we probably pushed a little too hard. And at the time, um, we did, and other publications who covered this story, like uh, Time and the New York Times, also missed the fact that uh, there was a, a certain amount of opposition um, um, in the scientific community, people who said, hey, wait a minute, this really isn't happening. And there are, there are other factors involved, which uh, may in fact um, counter the uh, global cooling by, um, by causing global warming. We now know that the world is heating up in a dangerous way. And scientists are in near unanimous agreement that greenhouse gases from human activity are the reason. At the time that story was published, atmospheric science was not as refined, though. We didn't have the kind of satellites or supercomputers for measuring and modeling the climate system we do today. We were, however, at the end of a slight cooling period, spurred by two other human influences, industrial use of aerosols and the burning of high-sulfur coal. Those both helped lower temperatures for a few decades by blocking solar radiation. But scientists were not in agreement that the world was headed for global cooling, not even close. Gwynne admits today that the article was incomplete and written in a way to attract attention. He had no idea how much attention it would get decades later. <laughs> well, I was astonished. I mean, for, for a long time, it seemed as this was going to be the, uh, the, the first sentence on my obituary. In the early 2000s, as warnings about heat-trapping gases intensified, the climate communications battle on the Internet was also intensifying. Peter Gwynne's Page 64 article became front-page news for climate skeptics, who posted it as proof that scientists were confused or even deliberately misleading about climate change. That myth has become deeply ingrained in today's politics. Here's Republican presidential candidate Mike Huckabee on Meet the Press in June answering a question about climate change. Whether it's man-made or not, I, I know that when I was in college, I was being taught that if we didn't act very quickly, that we were going to be entering a global freezing. And, and, you know, go back and look at the covers of Time and Newsweek from the early 70s. And, and we were told that if we didn't do something by 1980, we'd be popsicles. 
Now we're told that we're all burning up. And just a few weeks before that, Republican presidential hopeful Ted Cruz used the same talking point. Let's talk about, about having humility. I read this morning a Newsweek article from the 1970s talking about global cooling. And it said the science is clear. It is overwhelming. We are in a major cooling period, and it's going to cause enormous problems worldwide. And the solution for all the advocates in the 70s of global cooling was massive government control of the energy sector, of our economy, and, and, and aspects of our lives. Now, the data proved to be not backing up that theory. So then all the advocates of global cooling suddenly shifted to global warming. And they advocated it's warming. And the solution, interestingly enough, was the exact same solution, government control of the energy sector and every aspect of our lives. For those who may only hear the occasional political soundbite about global warming, it's understandable that this might cause some confusion. But the most basic internet search will uncover the truth. There was never anything close to a consensus about global cooling in the 1970s. Tom Peterson, a research meteorologist at the National Climatic Data Center, meticulously tracked all the peer-reviewed climate papers from the era. His analysis, conducted with two other colleagues, was itself peer-reviewed. What we found is there were indeed a few papers related to global cooling that were mainly looking at things like aerosols as, as a cause of cooling, which generally um, is true. And then, um, but it, the dominance, even back then, were papers that looked, that had a concern about global warming. That there was, that era was never dominated by cooling papers. They were just a small fraction of the number of papers coming out. But in politics, facts are secondary to a good narrative. If you truly want to believe in a myth, no amount of data can convince you otherwise. And that's where we find ourselves today. Mainstream presidential candidates who want to lead the most influential country in the world are unwilling and incapable of embracing the most elementary facts. It's a feeling like we're playing whack-a-mole, and we whacked this one really hard, and we, and we kind of killed this myth. But now it's sort of like this zombie story coming back from the dead that that, you know, there's, there's other people spouting it off based on, you know, oh, Newsweek had one article about it, therefore that was all the information they needed to, to form a, a whole view of climate science. So it's frustrating to see this return from the dead. Peter Gwynn stayed silent for many years, but when the myth came back from the dead, kept alive by obscure skeptic blogs, he decided to try to kill it once and for all. Last year, Gwynn authored a long piece clarifying the Newsweek article and criticizing those who misused it. It was a strongly worded piece, but it's done little to destroy the global cooling myth. This is the, uh, yes, it, 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 to some extent is the downfall of science, it's, uh, of, of science that, uh, that they, they think too rationally. And that, uh, um, just to put it crudely, your politicians and uh, the people who listen to them don't necessarily think rationally. That weakness, rational thought, turns out to be science's greatest strength. I'm going to assume that you're someone who appreciates facts and understands how science works. So to further clarify this myth 40 years after its creation, I turn to someone who deals in both. My name is Gavin Schmidt. I'm the director of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, uh, which is a NASA lab here in New York City. What does the director of the Goddard Institute actually do? Um, I'm mostly in charge of uh, climate simulations. So I, I run a large group here who build uh, models of the climate system that include processes uh, in the oceans, in the atmosphere, on the land, on ice sheets. 
uh, and we're trying to uh, understand what we're seeing in the real world, uh, how things are changing, how things have changed in the past, and what they might do in the future. So I'm here to talk to you about a myth, a myth that keeps popping up. It's popped up recently in the presidential campaign. It's not particularly new, but it just will not die. And that myth is that in the 1970s, climate scientists were predicting an imminent ice age, and that only when the facts didn't align, they started talking about global warming. Help us understand what really happened back then. Yeah, so that's both bad history and bad science. So the history of, of what actually happened in the 1970s was that uh, uh, there, were, there were like three things that uh, the people were very interested in that kind of came together in the early 70s. Uh, one was uh, finally getting enough uh, good chronology dates on when the last ice ages had happened that we were able to see that the pacing of the ice ages was related to um, uh, the, the the wobbles in the Earth's climate, and that was uh, that was a huge result because the the mystery of why there had been ice ages had been a uh, a big uh, a big topic in climate science for for a hundred years before that, uh, and so in the ni- early 1970s we had really the first quantitative explanations for what was going on uh, with the ice age cycle which has been going on for about two and a half million years Um, and one of the results that came from that was that the previous warm periods the last two previous warm periods had lasted around 10,000 years Um, and so there are a couple of people that I that at the time I think was was it was even true, but but now it's obviously true, uh, who naively said, well, therefore, all warm periods last 10,000 years. This one's lasted 10,000 years. We should be due for another uh, ice age. Um, uh, but that's actually, it turns out that the, that the ice age cycles are much more complicated than that, and not all of them are the same. And in fact, the one that we're in right now, even if we weren't uh, even if there was no uh, human changes to the situation, uh, we wouldn't really be expecting another ice age for actually another 30,000 years. Now, without greenhouse gases released from human activity, we, we might actually be in a slight cooling period, yes? Um, we would have a very slight cooling cycle, but not enough to put us into a new ice age. Um, and so that was like some of the subtleties that weren't really apparent in the 1970s. But instead, you know, you had this like, oh, my God, you know, the... Uh, the wobbles in the Earth's orbit control the ice age cycle, which was a really big result. Um, the second uh, element was that uh, atmospheric pollutants had been increasing dramatically. So if you look back at uh, you know photographs of Pittsburgh, photographs of LA, what you see is like there was a haze um, and and a, and a level of pollution um, across the US and across Europe and across Japan uh, that was extremely uh, large, and it was due mainly to the burning of uh, high sulfur coal. Um, and uh, people were starting to worry about what that was doing, not just to people's health and not just to acid rain, which it was always also contributing to, but also to climate. And so people were looking at what the impacts of, you know, putting large amounts of particles in the atmosphere would be, and they have a cooling effect, right? So uh, uh, people had been aware of the warming effect of increasing greenhouse gases for a long time, you know, since the 19th century. Um, and people had thought about dust and, and, and atmospheric pollutants. But this is, you know, it was clear that atmospheric pollutants had been going up, and so people were anticipating that there would be a cooling because of that. And there was, uh, there was one paper... Uh, that suggested that you know if we increased emissions by a factor of four, then it would be large enough to push us back into an ice age. 
Um, that was a was a paper that was subsequently corrected, and it turned out that they got their numbers wrong a little bit. Um, but that was that was that was a real issue. You know, what is the impact of of, of atmospheric pollutants on climate? Um, and then what we'd seen in the temperature records, as we were basically just trying to put the temperature records together, was that in the early 70s, there'd been a slight cooling from the 1940s. Okay, and so you've got three elements which were all independent. Um, and then I think a few rather excitable uh, journalists uh, thought that they were all the same thing. And thought that this cooling was due to aerosols, and that was going to cause an ice age, and we're going to have an ice age anyway, and ah, oh, we're going to have an ice age. And so you can actually find out what was going on then in the scientific community by looking at the literature. What papers were being published uh, then, uh, and what were people talking about? Yeah, well, this is well documented. I mean, a few years back, some prominent researchers surveyed all the peer-reviewed literature and showed that papers back in the 70s were predominantly predicting warming. Uh, but... But you shouldn't really just be looking at single papers, right? So one, one of the things that's, um, that this demonstrates really well is that, you know, how do you know what a consensus of scientists are saying, right? How do you know whether everybody is agreeing about something, right? It's not really good enough just to count the number of papers. It's not really good enough just to ask three or four people and then write an article about it, right? That, that doesn't really tell you what's going on. The ways that we have developed to to kind of work out where we are kind of collectively are things like the National Academy of Sciences, are things like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, are things like the WMO reports on ozone. These are large multi-scientist, multi-institution assessments of what the literature says. And the National Academies has been doing this since since the time of Lincoln. Um, and they were asked in the, 19, in the in 1974, uh, well, you know, tell us what scientists are thinking about in terms of climate change. Uh, I mean, that was effectively what they were asked about. Or the human modification of climate was was the was the buzzword of the day. And if you read that report, it's really good. It's like, okay, well, there's we, there's evidence that carbon dioxide is increasing. Well, that's a greenhouse gas. There's evidence that. Our pollutants are, uh, are increasing and that's going to cool the climate and we've looked at the orbital changes and we've looked at the sun and we've looked at this and it's a very confused picture you know we think that uh, we really need to do some more research on this and that was exactly right right there wasn't uh, a clear set of tools to analyze that at the time we didn't have the data set that we can now use to assess how things have changed over time uh, to the same degree um, uh, they did need more data from the oceans. They did need more data from the Arctic. You know, now we have that data, right? Um, now we have much better tools. And so our ability to both attribute past changes and make uh, better predictions for the future is, is enormously increased since what, it, since what it was in the 1970s. Uh, and now the National Academies, if you ask them, why, well, what do we know what's going on? They say, yes, yes, we do know what's going on. It's mostly carbon dioxide and it's going to increase and it's going to get worse, right? Because the science has moved on, right? Where there were ambiguities in data, in tools, in mechanisms, now the ambiguities are not so much in that, but in the total magnitude of the impacts that the, the that we're going to see. Uh, and that's a whole nother level. So so over the last 40 years, 
uh, science has progressed. We've learned a lot more about the system. We have much better tools for understanding the system. Uh, and we're able to say things far more confidently than they did then. So if you pay attention to the National Academy's reports, you would not have been confused in the 1970s. You would not have written those articles. And you certainly would not be uh, getting on the floor of, uh, of the House and claiming that, uh, that scientists were all in agreement when they clearly weren't. Thanks for tuning in to this week's interstitial. Remember to subscribe to Warm Regards on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Overcast, SoundCloud, or grab our RSS feed and use any podcast app out there. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. The Twitter handle is Our Warm Regards. And of course, contact us if you want to hear any particular topics. The email address is OurWarmRegards at gmail.com. We've got lots of great content on the way. For Eric, Jacqueline, and Andy, I'm Stephen Lacey for Warm Regards. <laughs>